I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a podcast about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. We are again sheltering in place and therefore recording this all separately in our own homes, um, which may affect the quality, the audio quality, not the intellectual quality of the discussion (laughs) you are about to hear. May affect the intellectual quality slightly. Uh, Well... (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to talk about what happens to organizing, political organizing, workplace organizing, in a world in which people cannot gather in the same place. Can you organize resistance to this administration? Can you organize your own workplace when all of us are stuck at home? And in the second part of the show, we're talking about entertainment in a pandemic. How do movies portray a crisis? And why are we watching them in self-isolation? This is The Politics of Everything. We are joined today by Mika Sifri, who is the president of Civic Hall and the author of The Big Disconnect, Why the Internet Hasn't Transformed Politics Yet. He has a piece in the May issue called The Vanishing Public Square, which is about what happens to organizing in an age when we are all trapped at home. <laughs> and we're not sure how long we will be trapped at home. Mika, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Alex. Hey, Mika. Here in New York, I remember Hurricane Sandy. People were looking for ways to volunteer. They were looking for ways to go out and help. And here we are in the middle of a disaster where you are not supposed to go outside <laughs> unless you are unless you are literally a doctor or a nurse or or someone whose job is considered urgent. And yet people are still, I think, have feel that need, that impulse to contribute, to do something to help. And and people too feel we, a need to organize their like-minded people, the people they work with and so on. And one of the ways we've seen that play out is in these strikes of gig workers at, at Instacart and elsewhere mm-hmm. um, and in the nurses and doctors organizing to get personal protective equipment for themselves, which has been interesting. What have you thought about these early coronavirus efforts at, at organization that have been happening so far? Well, it's clear that organizing doesn't stop at a moment like this that people still have to act together collectively, advance their interests and figure out how they can do that. The challenge, of course, is is the the loss of so many of the things we take for granted about being able to meet together in place and see each other. And so I see a couple of things going on. The, The first one is obviously the people who now have all of these new burdens placed on them, whether it's the frontline medical workers or the food service and delivery people who are even more essential now than they were before and who are in many, many cases really being exploited by their employers like Amazon and so on and not being given the kinds of protections that they need. I mean, in some places you still have people physically, you know, in warehouses who are literally walking off the job to demand that those places be cleaned and and that people be given appropriate safety, clothing, and so on. And then in the virtual space, you know, we're also seeing people organizing using a very old-fashioned tactic, which is, you know, a form of a a labor strike. Um, Even if you don't have a union, if a group of workers, say the graduate students out at UC Berkeley, who have been trying to get a union, and now all of a sudden they've been hit with the added burden of taking on virtual online teaching. And, you know, they basically said, we're not going to hand in grades for students unless you up our wages. So they're going on a grade strike. So there, there are some interesting, you know, tactics evolve. And while it's true that unlike after Hurricane Sandy, when, the, you know, the disaster was the hurricane and then the, the response, we could all act collectively by swarming 
Um, here we are seeing a kind of bucket brigade form around getting supplies to frontline healthcare workers. I'm in a WhatsApp group chat that seems to have dozens and dozens of people who are connected to a larger national network that have figured out how to source N95 masks and, and um, you know, how to literally uh, crowdsource the funding of new supply coming in from China. Um, so organizing hasn't stopped. Right. But yes, it's like a Band-Aid on a, on a gaping wound. I mean, it's severely limited now, yes. right? Yes, The The organizing for getting masks and, and other protective gear, you know, that is a response to a failure of the federal government and a failure of this administration that in, you would hope, normal times would have people in the streets, right? right? Um, and now it has them in yes. WhatsApp. It doesn't uh, have the same <laughs> impact. You know, the, the first idiotic thing that the Trump administration did back at the beginning in 2017 was the travel ban. And, you know, within hours, everybody was texting, just go to JFK. It took off like wildfire around the country that the obvious move to stop this act of, you know, madness was to go to the airports. And it was quite powerful, right, to see that happen. And this is what I think we, we're suffering from to a certain degree is, you know, how long will we lose this kind of ability to do visceral politics where we actually show up with our bodies? You've written about this idea of visceral politics a bit before. Earlier uh, in the year, you wrote a piece in TNR2 about the special power of organizing in place. And I wonder if you could just talk to us a bit about what is so powerful about that act of being physically in the same space as other people. Um, how does it build membership? How does it build lasting engagement? You know, it, at its most basic, we as human beings are very social and we crave connection with others. And, you know, beyond just the connection that comes from family and friends, it's the connections around shared identity and shared mission. You know, there's a lot of evidence about uh, what gets people to become more politically active that, it, in fact, it is not usually because you start out with you know, some very ideological point of view about an issue, and then you go searching for the, the group that you can join to work on that issue. It's more often, yes, there's something, you know, impelling you to feel like you need to do something, but it's the friends that you make when you join a group that hold you and keep you in the work. You know, the fact that the right wing in America has this deep social infrastructure of things like local gun clubs and homeschooling Christian moms who share babysitting duties with each other or whatever, that's what real solidarity is built on top of. And, you know, we on, on the left don't nearly have the same experience of that anymore, you know, with the decline of labor unions, the decline of most organized religion. You know, in that earlier piece, I started with this story about a gay bookshop in London that during the coal miner strike decided to raise money in solidarity with the co-workers who Margaret Thatcher was trying to, you know, crush. And it was because they knew what it was like to be a persecuted minority as gay and lesbian people that they felt they should try and do something in solidarity with those Welsh miners. The Welsh miners had a community hall. And so people, as they were going through the strike, were all getting together to share food and to mm. sing and to dance and to, you know, again, when people do something hard, like risk getting arrested... They need to have a lot of trust in each other to take that kind of action. And so one of the things that I think is really hard for the gig workers and the, you know, the Amazon warehouse workers and Instacart people and all of that right now is, you know, how do you, how do you build a larger sense of trust and solidarity 
when, you know, maybe you do know the five other people who work in the same food town or, you know, ShopRite as you, but you don't know all those other people who are, you know, signing up online and saying, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. You know, do you know if they're really going to show up and risk yeah. losing their job. Right. Yeah, and that story um, that you tell about the gay rights activists and the Welsh miners, it's, it's such a great story because it shows how two different groups can come together and form a coalition, share resources, double their power effectively by combining. And what a lot of groups need right now is for like frontline grocery store workers to also be allied with healthcare workers and to be able to make those connections and also reach a wider public that can support them. Um, and at a moment when it's really hard to even have face-to-face -face interactions with people that you don't live with, um, that seems like a huge question. I wonder, though, if we can learn from some of the mistakes of the digital side of organizing that you've also written about, the ways, particularly that the Democrats and left-leaning groups have tried to mobilize people on this serves or kind of bring people into a movement digitally. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm criticizing there is the tendency to uh, really focus on just building a really big email list, you know, like moveon.org, which has like 8 million people on their list, and where what you are doing very successfully is generating a large response, even if only a small percentage of the people on that list are taking an action that you're asking them to take, right? You could raise a lot of money pretty fast and that will get your ads seen and, and that's a kind of power. Let's not discount that, that's valuable. It's that the other power, which is the local ongoing community organizing where those 8 million people are, you know, 50 here and 100 there and, you know, all town by town know each other and meet regularly and dog their congressmen that's the piece that the left, I think, has neglected in the last decade or so of this emphasis on digital organizing. Since Trump got elected, we've seen an explosion of new locally based organizing happening, whether it's older people in groups like Indivisible or younger people in groups like the Sunrise Movement. Um, I'm part of an Indivisible group like that near where, where I live here in Westchester, New York, near Yonkers, you know, we're not that far from where the, the first epicenter of the crisis uh, in New York State started. And we had to very rapidly go from having a monthly meeting where 150 people show up and politicians come because they know there's going to be a big crowd to trying to do a virtual community meeting and praying that most of our older members would be able to understand how to get on Zoom. How is it going? How how is this work transferring to online? It's going bad. Um, what are you? It's going <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to break the fourth wall. It's probably worth mentioning that before we started to record this podcast, we had about 15, 20 minutes of <laughs> just all sitting around saying, "Can you hear me?" Yeah. Oh, I can hear you, right. and I can't hear the other person. So I can only imagine <laughs> a group of one hundred and fifty activists on a Zoom call or Google Hangout or whatever you're using is incredibly complicated technologically. Yeah. So the answer is, first of all, um, you know, there's this saying from William Gibson, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And, mm -hmm. you know, I actually tweeted that the other day at him and he replied, yes, I, I wish I didn't agree as much as I do right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a month ago, it was still hard to get people to recognize just what was coming. And I think that's a natural human response 
And also most people don't understand what the word exponential actually means. And so internally, our group had to get its head around the idea that uh, the meeting that we're going to have on March 15th, we're going to have to go virtual. As it turns out, Zoom is a pretty easy tool to use. And it was a joy to see so many people just get on with their video on and, and their faces lit up as they just recognized each other. And you could see the relief that people felt at just being seen and not being alone. And, you know, was the audio perfect? No, we, we had our state senator, who happens to be the Senate Majority Leader here in New York, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, trying to get on the call. She could not figure out how to get it to work. And so ultimately, I called her on my phone and I literally said, we're holding the phone up to the camera. <laughs> and you know what? It was good enough. Is it satisfying? Is it something that we'll be able to sustain this way of working over time? I think mm, it's hard to say. And that's partly because right now where I am, we all know somebody who is, you know, in dire straits. And I think that there's a big turning inward that's happening. Uh, a lot of people are just hunkering down and focusing first and foremost on survival. It's hard to build solidarity when everyone is scared for their own well-being, their own mm -hmm. living. And you can't actually, you have to do it remotely, you know? Like it's, <laughs> you can't sit these groups of people down and explain what they have in common and why their fight should be a collective one. It's, it's, I think know. it's harder when it's with people who you don't already know. Exactly. Right? So to the degree that there's some social infrastructure in place, people will check in on each other. I think we are seeing lots of lots of local neighborhood mutual aid efforts and there's no question that in a moment like this, what we worry about beyond just the frontline healthcare workers is also the people who are most vulnerable, who don't have extended family, who don't have, you know, somebody who's checking in on them. And can we figure out how to step into those gaps? Right. And another aspect of this is not just the fear a lot of people are living with, but also just purely one of resources and time. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, too, that Alex and I were talking about just before this was... Um, this reliance on video conferencing is really tough on people who don't have a ton of access to the internet. Like maybe their main way of getting online is their phone and they're on a cell phone plan with a limited amount of data. Uh, you know, one Zoom call is going to swallow a movie's worth of data. You're absolutely right that what this moment exposes, in addition to these critical gaps in the health system and how inequality in the economy maldistributes resources, we are also discovering just how much the Internet is vital infrastructure. And 40% of the households in New York City cannot afford, do not have high-speed broadband access at home. I mean, maybe, you know, a silver lining will be that we can build the political demand to convert these communications platforms into basic public infrastructure, you know, because they're basically like utilities. Now, the thing is, we're literally being kept alive now in part by our ability to network. And secondly, we shouldn't have to give up our privacy as a condition mm. You know, Facebook can hold a town hall meeting, but it's not a true town hall meeting. It's just an opportunity for surveillance. And that should not be a condition for, you know, watching or participating in a conversation with my elected officials. 
Right. I mean, and, and it's, you know, labor organizing, uh, other kinds of organizing, but finding people where they are, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, workers, they're not all on the shop floor now. Like if you are an Instacart deliverer, you might not know the other Instacart deliverers. Part of the way that all of these tech companies have organized their labor force seems in part designed to keep people apart from each other to prevent organizing. But then where people are is literally like you were saying, for a lot of them, mm. it's Facebook. And there's something that is sort of dystopian about the idea that now we have to use these private, proprietary, for-profit platforms that do, you know, surveil their users. Just in order to reach people, you almost have to find yourself using them. On the other hand, I mean, let's remember, you know, we're not completely passive in this story. Uh, In the last few weeks, Zoom, which is a, a really easy to use video conferencing platform, has taken off like crazy. Its stock is up some huge amount. But in the last few days, a whole bunch of people, including Consumer Reports, which I happen to sit on the board of, full disclosure, um, have zeroed in on the fact that there are some real serious privacy concerns with Zoom. The default setting includes the ability for the host to know whether you're actually paying attention. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's frightening. So there has been good investigative journalism on this. And now Zoom has improved its privacy policy. So these companies are vulnerable For example, all the baristas at Starbucks have been organizing with each other for a while now using a platform called Coworker, and they started with some very mundane things. This goes back before coronavirus, like um, the right to, uh, in summertime when it's hot, wear a short sleeve shirt, even if that means exposing the tattoos that you have on your arm. They used Coworker, which is just a petitioning platform at its core, to build uh, basically 20,000 baristas at Starbucks all over the country were basically demanding that be changed, and Starbucks changed it. Well, guess what? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I don't remember exactly, the same group of baristas, now double in size, said, it's time to close all our stores. It's not safe for us to come to work. And Starbucks gave in, and not only gave in, but gave in with full pay. And what kind of platform is Coworker? The people who built it had this vision that uh, there's this whole new class of workers out there who are really hard to unionize, but there are other ways to help them act collectively with each other. So the core of Coworker, it's basically a petition that other people sign. But as people sign the petition, you're building a list of people who you can now communicate to directly. You know, in effect, as a labor organizer, it's like figuring out Who are the live ones, you know, who you can Mm -hmm. then try and organize with more? And so some of those issues with the kind of venture capital backed startups that are doing a lot of surveillance aren't necessarily there with Coworker. I'm just trying to figure out if there are platforms people can feel more comfortable on. So the answer is a little bit complicated. Uh, You know, one of the members of our community at Civic Hall uh, actually works for United for Respect which does a ton of organizing of Walmart workers. So they are organizing these people using platforms like Coworker, but then one of the next moves they often make is they invite them into secret Facebook groups. The reason they do that is because everybody's on Facebook. It isn't that big a jump for them. And once you're in one of these secret groups, you can build stronger trust, you can have phone calls, you you do other things to strengthen the relationship, including until now, bringing people together, you know, for retreats. So the answer to your question is nothing is pure. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, so I have a final question for you, which is, if you were someone who's at home right now, you have access to the resources, you have a little bit of time, and you want to get involved in some way, Mm. what advice would you give to that person? So what I would say is the fact that so many of us now feel this sense of my life is at stake, or if it isn't mine, it's my parents or my, you know, somebody else who I really care about means that there's a lot of potential volunteer energy to galvanize, and it's already happening. If you aren't plugged in, you know, one place I would send people very simple is a website called whileathome.org, which is one of a couple of different hubs that have been emerging to kind of give people right away a very simple set of things you can do, whether it's learning how to get tested if you need to get tested for COVID, learning where you can donate or how to get involved. The internet is really good at helping us come together when we already agree about something. <laughs> yeah. it, it does not make it easier when we disagree. But this is one of those moments where it isn't that hard to figure out, like, um, you know, on the grand scale of priorities, what the first two or three need to be. Um, that is my silver lining. I, but I, I don't want to diminish how painful it is for us to lose the ability to come together shoulder to shoulder, you know, as they say, press the flesh, you know, losing that hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I'm on a rare moment, it's like about one hour a day mm-hmm. when I'm feeling hopeful. <laughs> uh, I think that this will radicalize a lot of people around certain institutions in this mm-hmm. country that need to change. And the thing that needs to be done is for their pent-up energy to be saved until it is safe for it to be released. You know, in the organizing (laughs) world, that is our hope. Uh, But we've never quite lived through something like this. So I I Mm. think that being connected digitally uh, is the thing that we didn't have before. You know, our ability to stay connected and hopefully swarm our attention, our money, and maybe even our, our bodies when it's possible to do that to where the help is most needed, that will be the saving grace of this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope you were right. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us, Mika. Absolutely, yeah. my pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to us, Mika. And make sure, um, everyone, that you read Mika's piece. It's called The Vanishing Public Square. It's an on-new issue, and there's a lot to think about in there. talking about entertainment during a lockdown. In the first weeks of the virus spreading, people were watching movies like Contagion and Outbreak, looking for ways to make sense of the crisis as it was approaching. Two of our colleagues have written about this from different angles. Joe Livingstone's joining us, and so is Alex Shepard. They're both staff writers at The New Republic, and they've both been thinking about how movies represent pandemics. And now we're deeper into this, can any of them quite capture what we're going through? Alex and Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to start off actually with the film that I think will be familiar to most people, which is Contagion. This is Steven Soderbergh's movie from 2011 about a virus that's very much like coronavirus, although I think is based on SARS, spreading throughout the world. So Joe, why don't you just recap Contagion for us so we're all on the same page? So Contagion is, um, it's got kind of a vast star cast, its seeming protagonist at the beginning dies within the first 10 minutes. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler, as I think if anybody knows anything about this movie, they know that Gwyneth Paltrow falls on her kitchen floor and convulses within minutes of the opening titles concluding. But essentially, we see in 
a very, very tightly paced movie, a virus spreading around the world, killing a large proportion of its inhabitants, while Marion Cotillard hunts patient zero while looking very attractive. Um, Jennifer Ely uh, sequences its DNA while looking very attractive. Jude Law does conspiracy <laughs> theory blogging while looking attractive. It's essentially a very, very decorative and amped up to be more terrifying version of what we are experiencing now. I like that they tried to make Jude Law slightly less incredibly attractive by giving him that one fake tooth. <laughs> and an Australian accent. Right, that's how you show that he's not a famously <laughs> handsome actor, but he's in fact a freelance writer and fringe journalist. <laughs> this is like, yeah, signaling that he's untrustworthy. <laughs> Joe, you wrote this a while ago. Um, we were at an earlier stage of this pandemic. And I, I wonder, because I, I think that was when there were stories about how it was amassing so many uh, rentals on iTunes or whatever. I think a lot of people were also watching it. And it is, the movie is like a serious attempt to actually tell the story of what would happen in the event of a international viral pandemic with a particularly dangerous virus. And you can sort of recognize things that are happening now. And I wonder if that, <laughs> now the further along we get, the less attractive that kind of movie seems. When, you know, our period of self-isolation began, I think maybe like other people, I was looking for really any kind of way to process the information that was now a part of my life. And, you know, movies are sort of like, they digest ideas for you in a way. And I found that very, I don't think cathartic is the right word, but I, I found that comforting last week. <laughs> right, because the idea earlier was this is sort of giving you a picture of how things could play out. You have this influx of information and then the story is sort of giving you a narrative like this is how it could all fit together. These are the consequences that could result. Right, so it's partly the concept of, you know, playing out various potential scenarios and that gives you just a tiny little crumb of a sense of control over your situation. I think some of it's a genre issue. Its pacing is so artificial and so um, unfamiliar from the actual experience of daily life, at least for me now, <laughs> that strangely to see it, the pandemic issue made remote and turned into fiction in such a sort of self-conscious way was strangely therapeutic. Contagion ends, right? <laughs> like, we yeah. don't know. Like, that's actually, like, I can sort of see, like, that's the, the appeal. It's, it ends in two hours. And, and you know, here we are sitting for an indefinite amount of time in our apartment. So Alex Shepard, you have a completely different take on this. Uh, you wrote a piece arguing that Contagion is not the ultimate pandemic movie and that it's actually Jaws. Yeah, so I started thinking about this while watching Contagion along with tens of millions of other people. And what occurred to me watching it was that I think the like similarities are there between the virus itself, but what the movie is doing is it's looking at how societies respond to pandemics, and it has this very like Hobbesian view where people are setting Rite Aids on fire on like day four, uh, and it, you know Jude Law is taking advantage of this to make all this money. I think the movie has a very interesting sort of political viewpoint about uh, agribusiness and globalization. But actual politics is not there. It's famously a movie that never shows the president. Uh, and then I started thinking about what my day-to-day -day life was like in New York leading up to this. And, you know, I had just walked across Washington Square Park and it was filled with, you know, 30,000 people uh, on a very nice day. And nobody seemed to get what was happening at all. 
And I started thinking about the beaches uh, in Jaws then. <laughs> Jaws, of course, is the movie that made Steven Spielberg. Uh, came out in 1975. Uh, and it is about a shark that eats people. But mostly it's about how people <laughs> respond to the shark. <laughs> but the character that stood out to me thinking about this was Mare Vaughn, who is this very feckless mare who's obsessed with summer and the money that it brings to Amity. And he must keep the beaches open at all costs because otherwise people will just go to other beaches and spend all their money there and all the businesses will go bankrupt. And of course, that reminded me of both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. Right, and Boris Johnson, who famously had been quoted before all of this, but saying that he really admired the mayor in Jaws for keeping <laughs> everyone on the beaches. It's like a classic Boris Johnson kind of quip. The quote is incredibly funny in full. It's almost never quoted in full, but he says, I love the mayor in Jaws, uh, but you know, not for the whole keeping the beaches open thing. That didn't work out. But for the principle that he showed, he it was an unpopular decision and yet he took it anyways. And that, of course, makes no sense because like, the unpopular decision was a horrible one. Uh, there was not principled at all. It was completely horrific. And yet that's the same decision that Boris Johnson made. Yeah, the Boris Johnson approach before he changed course was that to allow the shark to at least bite everyone on the island and only a certain number of them would be eaten. (laughs) 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 So the idea here is like Jaws is sort of a parable about leadership. And one of the things that's underemphasized in pandemic movies is how much the experience of actually living through a pandemic is looking to leaders. Like I never thought I would hear ordinary people who don't really follow politics that closely telling me they're listening to Andrew Cuomo every day. Yeah. Like that's one one thing that's kind of keeping them going. One of the things that's interesting about Jaws is that it was filmed at the height of the Watergate hearings in the summer of 1974 and that the cast was at night they were having these Watergate parties whenever the testimony was particularly good. Uh, And I think the movie has this very cynical and jaundiced view about politics that I associate mostly with the baby boomers, but it does seem to be particularly applicable now because we're seeing what's guiding these decisions and it's not keeping people safe or stopping this outbreak or minimizing the number of casualties. It's it's very crass decisions about the stock market. It seems like it's possible that the Watergate hearings could have distracted the president from taking care of the shark at the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've seen Jaws 2, and I sort of hope you have it because it's terrible. Of course but, I've seen Jaws 2. Uh, he is... <laughs> He's still the mayor in Jaws 2, right? He's still the mayor in Jaws 2. Oh, no, no, no. So... <laughs> that actually is like an increasingly worrying parable for our time because like Trump's poll numbers are up. <laughs> Um, Well, so I do want to go back to Contagion, actually, and some of the portrayal of the political and also the bureaucracy. Because when Alex Perrine and I were talking about this before the show, one of the things that he pointed out was that that actually felt like the most uh, prescient or realistic part of the movie when he watched it. A lot of that particular kind of Soderbergh movie is about systems. And uh, that's sort of what it's trying to illustrate is how these systems would respond to a pandemic. And I think the interesting thing about Jaws is it's like a movie where they, it simply says, like, well, what if they didn't until they absolutely had to? <laughs> <laughs> um, when the virus is contained in contagion, um, it's contained, as you say, Alex, by the, the meeting of many systems, many bureaucracies which come together in this beautiful 
like hyper bureaucracy. Uh, the CDC does something important. I think the CDC developed a vaccine. FEMA and DHS distribute it. They are collaborating with people from other countries. They're speaking with the World Health Organization. They perform this sort of perfect ballet of people doing their jobs in such a way um, <laughs> that the desired outcome is actually produced. Yeah, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking that it's sort of wobbly, but these two ideas, one is that this movie is sort of endorsing the like Elizabeth Warren theory of responses, that if you empower well-intentioned bureaucrats in a sort of depoliticized sense that they can do what's best for everybody in this kind of technocratic way. But also that's on top of this almost Trumpian vision of how individual people like at the local level would respond to this kind of thing. Yeah, I think the context in which we watch these movies is incredibly important. And certainly watching things at this moment when the context is changing so rapidly almost every day, it feels like from month to month or from week to week, the audience that's watching a movie is actually different. They're experiencing different things. They're anticipating a crisis. And then the next week, maybe some people are actually experiencing symptoms or caring for someone who has been infected. And so people are bringing very different perspectives to these stories in a way that I think you don't notice as much when a movie is just being released in a more normal time period. And Joe, you were saying that you now feel kind of different about it. Since my own partner got ill, I have not watched any pandemic movies. I've been firmly moving into melodrama and imagining as far away from here as possible type stories. You know, I've actually joined a little Golden Age Hollywood movie watching club and we are staying in the 1940s and yeah, not coming back. <laughs> right. And it feels like with Contagion, it's become too close to reality. In fact, on our last episode, we spoke to Laurie Garrett, who's an expert on pandemics, and she was actually a consultant on that movie. And she's explained elsewhere that they based it very closely on the ways that governments have responded to outbreaks in the past. And so it's, it's sort of no coincidence that this movie, so many things happen in it that have now happened. And it also raises a question, I think, of how do you even discuss these kinds of movies? I mean, I feel like totally fine laughing and joking about Jaws, but I think there's a kind of difficulty, right, in talking about movies that hit a bit closer to home. The reason that I've been so interested in watching Golden Age Hollywood melodrama is that if I'm going to be watching someone die on my screen, I want them to die for a really good reason. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to see any kind of like wanton destruction of innocence. You know, I want to see mm -hmm. a bad guy do some really bad shit and then get clapped nines. Like really tightly plotted film noir. Exactly. Everything's steeped in mystery and layers of meaning and plots intersecting all over the place. Exactly. Last night, my movie club and I, we watched Sorry, Wrong Number, which is a fabulous Barbara Stanwyck movie where um, she makes a phone call from her bed. She's an ill woman and the operator drops the line and she ends up overhearing her own murder being plotted. That sounds amazing. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Joe and Alex, for talking to us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And I'll see you in a remote office very soon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see you in Slack. This is The Politics of Everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please do take advantage of the New Republic's stuck-at-home special offer. You get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for $5. Available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening. 